The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, uh, what I'd like to do today is to continue where we left off last time in talking about this risk-reward trade-off uh, which ultimately will allow us to be able to figure out how to calculate the proper discount rate for any project under the sun. Now, where we left off last time was uh, the, uh, this equation and the one after it. This equation we actually derived. I showed you how to get this equation from this particular uh, bullet and the tangency line. And today I'm going to give you names for them. The bullet, as we've said before, is the frontier. It's the set of frontier portfolios. And the upper arc of that bullet is called the efficient frontier. Now, the tangency line has a special name, too. That tangency line is known as the capital market line uh, because it represents what all efficient capital markets should represent in terms of risk-reward trade-offs. So if you are an efficient portfolio manager, you want to be on that line. Okay. So the capital market line, the equation for that tangency line is given by this. The expected rate of return is equal to the risk-free rate plus some kind of risk premium where the risk premium is given by a multiple of the market's risk premium or the market excess return. Okay? And the multiple is simply the ratio of the riskiness of your efficient portfolio relative to the market portfolio or the tangency portfolio. Okay? If it's twice as risky, you're going to get twice the risk premium. If it's half as risky, you're going to get half the risk premium. And we said last time that while this is helpful and interesting and even possibly useful, it's going to be of limited applicability because not everything is an efficient portfolio. What we mean by an efficient portfolio, the intuition for what an efficient portfolio is, is a portfolio where you cannot do better. By cannot do better, I mean you can't get less risk for that same level of return, or you can't get more expected return for that same level of risk. Okay? That's what we mean by an efficient portfolio. It's the best you can do. Now, most investments are frankly not efficient. If you pick an arbitrary stock like IBM, that's not an efficient portfolio. It doesn't mean it's no good. It doesn't mean you don't want to hold it. But it means that you would never want to hold just IBM. Because if you mixed IBM with other stuff, you can always do better. By do better, again, I'm going to reiterate, I mean you can have higher expected return for the same level of risk or lower risk for the same level of expected return. That's what I mean by do better. So you would never want to hold IBM just by itself because you can do better, right? You can do better in getting up to that northwest quadrant uh, from the IBM point. But even though IBM is not efficient, you might still want to hold it. And more importantly, you might still want to know what the appropriate discount rate is for companies that are like IBM. Okay. 
that's what we're going to do next. Where I left off last time was not the capital market line, but this equation, which I did not derive, but which I argued comes from the equilibrium argument that Bill Sharp made 50 years ago. Uh, and this really relies on the fact that if markets are in equilibrium, there is a relationship between risk and expected return for all securities, not just efficient portfolios. But any arbitrary security has to satisfy this equation if supply equals demand, if there's an equilibrium. If everybody holds the tangency portfolio and the tangency portfolio, therefore, is the market portfolio, in that situation, this equation has to hold. So where we left off was to try to interpret this equation. This equation is almost identical to the capital market line. There's only one difference. The only difference is that the multiplier, the thing that multiplies the market risk premium, is not sigma p over sigma m. It is beta. And beta, we said, was the ratio of the covariance of an asset with the market divided by the variance of the market. It is a measure of that particular asset's riskiness. It's not variance anymore or standard deviation. It's something else. And so I want to spend this class talking about what that something else is and why it makes sense. Okay? First of all, let's make sure we understand the equation. I want to do a few special cases. And then I'm going to take apart this notion of beta as being the right measure of risk in all circumstances. So the first thing I want to do is to look at some examples. Let's take an example where the beta is equal to 1. If the beta is equal to 1, what that's saying is that the covariance between the asset and the market divided by the variance of the market, that number is equal to 1. Okay? If that's the case, then it turns out that the expected rate of return of this asset with a beta of 1 is going to be just equal to the market risk premium, or the expected return is equal to the market's expected rate of return. right? When beta is equal to 1, the RFs cancel out, and the expected rate of return of the asset is equal to the expected rate of return of the market. Now, what about if the beta is equal to 0? If the beta is equal to 0, then you get the risk-free rate. It's important to realize that if the beta of an asset is equal to 0, it doesn't mean that the asset has no volatility. In the past, when we've looked at mixing the risk-free asset, T-bills, with the market, we know that when the risk-free asset is included, you get a, 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 that straight line. And it's because the risk-free asset has no covariance. It has no risk at all. But now, with an asset that has a beta of 0, you're getting the risk-free return, even though an asset with a beta of 0 still may have some volatility. There's, it's not the risk-free asset. It's any asset with a 0 beta. And the third observation that I want to make is when a beta is negative, with the beta that's negative, the expected rate of return is actually less than the risk-free rate. Now, that's really odd. I've got an asset that is risky. But just because it has a negative beta, the expected rate of return is less than the risk-free rate. That means that you are willing to take a lower expected rate of return than the risk-free rate for an asset that has this weird property of negative beta. 
And the question I want to answer today is why is that? Why, why, why is it the case that you might be willing to take such a low rate of return? And actually, if the beta is negative enough, if this beta is negative enough, it could be the case that the expected rate of return is negative. In other words, you might be willing to pay somebody for the privilege of bearing that risk. That, that seems completely counterintuitive. Why would you be willing to pay to take risk? You should be getting paid to take risk, right? That's the, the, the standard uh, hypothesis that we come into the financial markets with. So yeah, Leo? That's right. Exactly. That's, that's exactly the intuition for all three of these cases. It turns out that the beta, remember, has this covariance term in there. And it is going to turn out that if you can find an asset that is negatively correlated to the tangency portfolio, that is going to be of tremendous value to you. It's very, very valuable. Now, OK, let me try to explain the logic behind it. Now, we're going to do a few examples. So let's go through the basic logic of what's going on. The tangency portfolio, M, plays a central role in that everybody in the world is going to want to have a portfolio that's a combination of the risk-free asset and the tangency portfolio. That's fact number one. Fact number two, the tangency portfolio is a portfolio that has the aggregate measure of the total amount of risk in the economy that cannot be diversified beyond that point. In other words, uh, in order to get lower risk than this particular portfolio, you have to decrease your uh, expected rate of return. There's no way to get lower risk uh, and keep that same level of expected return. You can't go this way. You have to go down this line. Okay, So if you're going to hold a portfolio of purely risky securities, then basically this is the best that you can do. This is the best trade-off that you can get uh, in terms of risk reward. So right away, you know that this market portfolio plays a very special role. right? It is. It is really the, the representation of the aggregate risk in the stock market. And that's why it can serve as a kind of a benchmark for what the stock market is doing. So we're going to come back to that benchmark idea in a few minutes. So if you have a, a, a security that is very highly correlated to that market return, then that's not going to help you in terms of your own diversification. If, on the other hand, you have a security that is negatively correlated with that market portfolio, that's going to help you a lot. And if it's going to help you a lot, you're willing to pay for it. When you're willing to pay for it, what does that mean? You drive the price today high, and therefore the expected rate of return, which is the return between today and next period, that becomes lower. Okay. So an asset that helps you hedge what is essentially unhedgeable, in other words, the market portfolio, that can benefit you a great deal. 
as a result, it's going to be very hard to find negative beta securities or assets. But in any case, this relationship really tells you that given a particular covariance, you can measure the expected rate of return that you ought to be getting. All right? And this relationship is so important that we give it a separate name. It's called the security market line. Not the capital market line, but the security market line, because this applies to every single security uh, in your entire universe. Yeah, Dennis? You say it's hard to find something with a negative beta. Yeah. But when you short something, does that mean you're getting negative beta? It is. It is. You, you, you do. But the problem with shorting something where you get a negative beta, you also get a negative expected rate of return, typically. So what you want to have is an asset that's got a positive beta, or negative beta, but a positive expected rate of return. That's what's very rare. But you can manufacture a negative beta security very easily by just shorting it, right? The problem is that when you short a stock, you're going to also get a very negative expected rate of return. And that doesn't help you in terms of producing an attractive investment opportunity. Ken, question? Well, uh, it's very hard to come by, but the closest thing that exists in markets today is uh, stocks that are uh, involved in uh, gold uh, production, gold mining stocks. That has a beta of around zero, but sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive, but it's small. So that's an example, but that's about the only example that we can come up with in the data that looks slightly negative. Right? By and large, most of the betas uh, in the data sets are positive, and they're actually clustered around one. So the typical beta is in the, in the neighborhood of 0.5 to 1.5. All right, now before we start looking at the data, I'm going to show you some data in a minute. I, I want to take the security market line and apply it. So the security market line, I did not derive. I want to make that clear. And for those of you who are interested in the derivation, you can take a look at the appendix in uh, the Breeley, Myers, and Allen. They provide the derivation. It's a little bit messy, but uh, you know, with a little bit of matrix algebra, uh, you can work through it. Um, but the implications are extremely important. So I want all of you to know how to use it. So it may look pretty simple. But I'll show you a few applications that you might not have uh, thought of. For example, suppose this is true for every single security. Well, if it's true for every single security, it turns out that this works for portfolios as well. And let me show you why. Suppose we've got a portfolio that's a weighted average of the returns for the individual component securities, right? Then if I calculate the covariance between the portfolio return and the tangency portfolio or the market, the covariance is going to look like this, which is actually just going to look like a weighted average of the covariances. Okay? This is a mathematical identity from here down to here. And therefore, when I divide both sides by the variance of the market, I get something pretty neat which is that the beta of my portfolio, where beta is defined as the covariance between the portfolio and the market, the divided by the variance, the beta of the portfolio is just equal to the weighted average of the betas of my component securities. That's, that's really neat, because what that says is that 
when I want to measure the risk of a collection of securities, as long as I know the betas of each individual security, I can calculate the weighted average of those betas, and that is the beta of my portfolio. So if you think of beta as a measure of risk, this measure of risk is actually linear, unlike volatility, which is not linear, right? The variance of a portfolio is not simply equal to the sum of the variances weighted by their portfolio weights. It's that complicated expression where you're adding up all of those cross products as well. So we get an enormous simplification with the security market line. It says that we can measure the risk of a portfolio using this concept called beta. And beta happens to be linear in the sense that when you take a weighted average, the beta is equal to the weighted average of the individual asset betas. Okay. So therefore, if you know that the betas are going to be a weighted average, then in fact, the expected rate of return on the portfolio now is equal to the risk-free rate plus this weighted average beta times the market risk premium. Do you see the power of this? This now allows you to analyze the expected return on anything, any collection of assets. If you know what the betas are for the individual components, you know what the betas are for the whole thing. right? So now you can calculate the appropriate rate of return for virtually anything. And this is not just limited to stocks. You can apply this to projects. For example, if you want to know what the expected rate of return is on an oil drilling project, well, measure the beta of oil drilling stocks, use that beta, and that will be your appropriate discount rate for the particular oil drilling project. Right? It's a really remarkable, a remarkable uh, result. So we have an expression for the required rate of return, opportunity cost of capital, risk adjusted discount rate for all the various different kind of examples and cases that we looked at up until now. And the last point I want to make about this equation is how do you actually take it out for a spin? How do you estimate the expected rate of return on the market and the risk-free rate? Well, that comes from the data. That comes from the marketplace. We observe it in the marketplace, and we can actually see it. Okay, so let's do some examples just to make sure that we all get this and know how to apply it. Using returns from 1990 to 2001, we estimate that Microsoft's beta during that period of time is 1.49. And uh, if you do the same thing for Gillette, you get that, that Gillette's beta is 0.81. Now, let's not even look at the next uh, set of numbers for a moment and just talk about those two numbers, 1.49 and 0.81. Does that make sense to you? Let's think about what that's saying. 1.49 says that the covariance between Microsoft and the market portfolio is actually a lot higher than the variance of the market itself. So let me ask you to think about whether or not adding Microsoft to your portfolio is going to make it less risky or more risky. And here's how I want you to think about it. Remember what we said about diversification. When you hold a collection of securities, what matters more, the variances or the covariances? Right. Why is the covariances more important? What's a 
quick and dirty way of arguing that the covariances matter more. Yeah, Eduardo. Exactly. There are a heck of a lot more covariances than there are variances. You only got n variances to worry about, but you got n squared minus n covariances. And if they all line up in the same direction, you get the subprime crisis problem, right? OK. So covariances matter more than variances. Well, if that's the case, then when we look at a stock and think about bringing it into our portfolio, we want to ask the question, what is it doing in terms of adding or subtracting covariances to our portfolio. And one way to measure whether or not it's adding or subtracting is to ask the question, what is the covariance between Microsoft and my, my stock holdings? Now, what are your stock holdings? If everybody is a rational investor, by rational, I mean you like return and you don't like risk then you know you're going to be holding the risk-free rate and the market portfolio. You're going to be on that capital market line, right? So if you're a rational investor, the only stock holding you have is that mutual fund M, the tangency portfolio. So therefore, the most important thing in your mind is when you think about buying a new stock and putting it into your portfolio, is this going to be highly correlated with my market portfolio? Well, that's what beta measures. Beta is a relative measure that says, OK, the total variance that you're holding in risky securities, that's sigma m squared. That's the variance of the market portfolio. How does Microsoft compare to that in terms of what it will contribute in terms of its covariance with your holding? So you're holding one mutual fund. And you're thinking about adding Microsoft, the only covariance that you should care about is the covariance between Microsoft and what you're holding. Well, that's what beta measures. If the number is greater than one, what it's saying is that when you bring Microsoft into your portfolio, you're going to be increasing the variance because the covariance, which is what we care about, is greater than the variance of what you're holding. If, on the other hand, the beta is less than one, then Presumably, that's helping you because that's lowering the variance relative to what you're holding. But helping or hurting, that only uh, can be answered directly if you explain what you're getting in terms of the expected rate of return. So looking at beta by itself is not enough. Beta is a measure of risk, right? It measures this covariance divided by the variance, or covariance per unit variance in the marketplace. But you want to know what the expected rate of return is as well. That's what the security market line gives you. OK, so now let's get back to the example. Microsoft is a lot more risky than the market. It's about 49% more risky, according to this measure. On the other hand, Gillette is actually less risky than the market. Now, do you guys buy that? Does that, does that pass the smell test? Does that make sense? Why? What's, what's, what's the intuition for that? Courtney? Exactly. That's right. If you make the argument that from 1990 to 2001, if there are economic downturns, what's the first to go? Razor blades or windows? Thankfully, windows. Uh, nowadays, I don't know the answer to that, actually, you know, because nowadays we depend so much 
on the internet that actually it could be different. So I haven't updated this analysis to see what the beta is from 2001 to 2008, but it could be different. Uh, so now we may have unshaven geeks that, uh, you know, during downturns, and uh, maybe it's flipped around. Eduard. Um, could, could you give us an intuition? Because beta allows us to compute the appropriate return <coughs> for a, a, non, a certain risk. Yes. But what is the intuition of how far away am I from the efficient portfolio? So how, how, how bad is this portfolio compared to the efficient? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Let me go back to this equation and take a look at it and try to provide even more intuition for this before we go on. So the idea behind this equation is that it tells you that this is the rate of return that you should have if you have a certain beta. Now you can actually measure the deviation from that very simply by asking the question for a portfolio manager or an investment project that yields an expected rate of return that's different from this that difference is actually what we call alpha. And alpha can be positive or negative. So when you say, how far away are you from efficiency, this gives you a direct measure of how far away you are. It's basically the difference between the expected rate of return you have versus what you're supposed to have given the beta of the security. But let me add one more thing to that, which is that beta is a measure of a particular kind of risk that uh, a particular security has. And the kind of risk, as I said before, is this covariance between the rate of return on a particular asset uh, and the rate of return on the market portfolio. This kind of risk is not the total risk of a particular security. In fact, it is called the systematic risk. The systematic risk is the portion of the risk that is related to the market portfolio. So how far away you are from efficiency really depends upon how much risk you have that is not necessarily systematic risk. Now, I, you, I don't expect you to understand all of it yet because I need to develop a little bit more machinery, but I'm going to get back to that intuition in just a few minutes. Okay? So I'm going to give you a better answer to your question than what I just did because I'll explain the difference between systematic risk and idiosyncratic risk, and I think then it'll make this completely transparent. So give me another 15 minutes. Yeah? So uh, you mentioned that gold stocks uh, can reduce the volatility. I mean, they may have. Uh, Historically, it has. Yeah. So uh, there are some currencies that are uh, indexed to gold prices. Yes. So let's say you're a company X. If you are listed in the Dow Jones versus this uh, country which, whose currency is indexed to gold, yep. do you expect the company that's listed in the gold index currency to have a lower beta? Uh, well, it could, but on the other hand, the question is, you know, what, what are they doing to try to hedge that currency exposure? In other words, if they end up hedging all of that exposure, then it doesn't matter anymore, right? right. So, so it, it depends. But the idea is that if it, it has exposure to a zero beta asset, then you will find that the ultimate fluctuations are going to have less correlation to the market portfolio. Slomi? Yeah. Microsoft is a growth company. Yeah. And she brings more returns. Yep. So this is the reason why she has more uh, bigger beta. 
You know, that's possible, but remember that when we estimate the beta, we're estimating it using monthly returns, and so we're measuring the covariance on a month-to-month -month basis, not just the trend. We're me measuring fluctuations around that trend. So the trend alone won't necessarily explain all of it. It has to also be the fluctuations are actually going both up and down, you know, higher than the variability of the market portfolio. All right? Let me continue on with the example, and we're going to come back. I'm going to show you how to estimate this, and then you'll develop more intuition from it. So you know, this makes sense from the smell test in the sense that Microsoft, at least during that period of time, was not necessarily something that you would expect would do well in good times and bad, but something like uh, razor blades uh, and shaving cream we need to use regardless. So that, that sort of tells us that these betas look about right. OK, if you agree with the betas, then it turns out that we can actually calculate the required rate of return for each of these two stocks. So if you assume that the risk-free rate is 5%, which is what it was about in that period, right? Not, not today, obviously, but back in that period, it's about 5%. And if historically the risk premium, as I told you last time, is about 6%, then when you do the calculations using the security market line, you get a very sharp answer to the question, what are the appropriate discount rates or costs of capital for these two companies? The answer, for Gillette, it's about 9.86%. For Microsoft, 13.94%. So now, if you're sitting in these, in these companies and you're asking the question, we're going to expand our operations. But in order to do that, we have to do an NPV calculation to see whether it's worthwhile. We have to compute the expected net present value of expansion. And in order to do that, we've got estimates of what our cash flows are going to be for our expansion, but we don't know what the cost of capital is. Well, here's the answer for you. You've actually got hard numbers to plug in to your NPV calculations now. Now, there are a bunch of assumptions that we've made. So we're going to have to go back and justify those assumptions each and every time you use this technology. It's not, it's not physics. This is not mathematics. You're applying a set of theories and approximations to a much, much more complex reality. Every time you apply it, you've got to go back and ask the question, does it make sense? Do these assumptions hold? And if so, great, go ahead and use it. If not, you've got to go back and rederive some of these analytics. OK, so the security market line is now a line that describes the expected return or required rate of return on an asset or a project as a function of the riskiness, where the riskiness is now measured by beta, not by sigma. It's not variance or standard deviation that measures the appropriate risk for most projects. Most projects, the way you measure their risk is not by sigma. It turns out that the way you measure their risk for the purposes of calculating the required rate of return, you measure it by beta. Okay, That's a very deep insight. It changes the way we think about risk and expected rate of return. It's not to say that risk in, in terms of volatility doesn't matter. Of course it does. That is the basis of this entire framework. We started out by saying that people don't like sigma and they do like mu. right? They don't like variance. They do like expected rate of return. That still holds. But in doing so, when we derive all of these implications, what we find is that as an investor, you don't get rewarded for taking larger and larger amounts of volatility. 
necessarily. You do get rewarded for taking larger and larger amounts of beta. That's the sense in which beta is a better measure of risk. For the purposes of computing the required rate of return, beta is the right measurement, not sigma. The only cases where sigma is the right measure of risk, when I say right, I mean where increases in sigma must imply increases in the required rate of return, is when. When is sigma the right measure of risk for the purposes of, of computing the required rate of return? For what kind of securities or portfolios? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. For efficient portfolios only. Efficient portfolios meaning these guys, meaning these guys. Anything on this line, then sigma is the right measure, right? Sigma P over sigma M, that is the right measure for any kind of portfolio that is efficient. But we know that the typical security, the typical project, the typical division is not efficient. Efficient, again, meaning you, can get the, you can't get any better expected rate of return for the same risk, or you can't get a lower amount of risk for the same expected rate of return. So for all of the inefficient securities, portfolios, or projects, you got to use this relationship. And this relationship tells you beta is what matters, not sigma. Sigma is not the same as beta, except if you happen to be an efficient portfolio. OK. Question, Anand? Do you have a question? No? OK. All right. So here's an example of the security market line at work. And the slope of this security market line is, of course, the expected rate of return on the market minus the risk-free rate. And the idea behind the security market line is that no matter what your beta is, you've got a required rate of return that's determined by this slope. And now, to answer Edouard's question about deviations and how far away you are from efficiency, if you deviate from this line, then the vertical distance is the alpha of your portfolio or project or investment opportunity. If markets are working exactly the way they should, then you're on this line. You're always on this line. And if you're Warren Buffett, you're off of this line. You've got a very large positive alpha. So if you've got skill, if you can forecast markets, then you will do better than this. But what this framework tells you is that even if you cannot forecast markets, even if you don't know what's going to happen next year to stock prices, you should still do as well as what this line suggests that you can do. Okay? On average, this line should be achievable by everybody that understands the basics of portfolio theory. Now, as I said, the performance evaluation uh, approach to using the security market line is just to measure the vertical distances. And it can lead to some interesting uh, results. For example, here are three managers. All three of these managers have a 15% expected rate of return. But they have different betas. And so the question is, if you had money to put into these managers, which would you choose? Well, clearly, you would choose manager A, because the manager is only supposed to have 
uh, 6% rate of return, but in fact is offering 15 for that level of risk. Manager B is just basically doing uh, what you would expect the manager should be doing. And manager C is actually underperforming. Given the risk that manager C is exposing you to, manager C should be doing much better than, than he is. Okay. And by the way, notice that I've said that the same, all three managers have the same volatility, 20%. You can have the same volatility but have different betas. Betas and volatilities do not necessarily go hand in hand. There is actually a relationship between beta and volatility. We'll talk about that in a little while. But that relationship is not nearly uh, as straightforward as you might think. Ingrid? Well, so it depends on, on who you are. If you are a typical uh, index fund manager, you would argue that mutual funds are basically going to provide you with a relatively, uh, relatively stable expected rate of return over time. So in other words, it'll fluctuate up and down because it's got some variance. But there is a baseline expected rate of return that a mutual fund offers you. And that's what people are buying. When you put your money in an emerging market uh, equity mutual fund, you're going to have a higher return on average, on average, than if you put your money in a uh, S&P 500 index fund. Why are you going to have a higher rate of return on average? Because you're going to be bearing more risk on average. The only way to convince you to put your money in an emerging market fund is if it does have that higher expected rate of return on average. So, what you're, ba what you're basing these kinds of calculations on is not that I can forecast what mutual funds are going to do next year, but rather mutual funds offer expected rate of returns that are stable over time. So what happened last year and the year before and the year before that, when you average it all together, it's about what you're going to get over the next five years. That's it. That's the argument. Yes. We don't know. Right, exactly. So, so there is a very large idiosyncratic component you know, that fluctuates year by year. And who knows what that could be? OK. Yes? Um, last time when you were uh, describing more yes. you mentioned that for more risk, um, people will expect more return, but not necessarily proportional to right. the. Uh, so so you, end, you end up having a line that just goes up exponentially. Right, because I mean, because you, you give an analogy that okay, not to get investors to bear more risk, to take on more risk, mm -hmm. you have to offer a lot more than right. just anything on the tangent line. Well, you you may, but well, the equilibrium theory that we've argued uh, has to hold actually s says that the risk reward trade-off is in fact linear for efficient portfolios. If it's not for efficient portfolios, then who knows? But the theory of the capital asset pricing model, or the security market line, which is what we derive, what we what we talked about today, this says that in fact it is linear. So in other words, this result, as I told you, we didn't derive it, but it's a major result that shows that the relationship between risk and expected return, where risk is measured by beta now, is linear. 
right? This is a linear relationship. So this is a major advance that we, we didn't expect. And in fact, so what I showed before was the preferences. The, so in other words, we talked last time about the situation where suppose that you're an investor and I start you off at a point like this. And I ask the question, if I want you to tell me where you're going to be uh, such that you're just as well off, you're, you have the same level of utility, that curve, that indifference curve, is going to look something like this. That's going to be curved, right? That's what you're talking about. But that's the behavior of one individual. The, the point about the CAPM is that if you aggregate all of the individuals together and ask the question, what does the expected rate of return and volatility or expected rate of return and beta look like? How are they related? In fact, it's, it's magical that it actually is linear. So it's exactly the, the fact that we didn't expect linearity, given that there are diminishing marginal returns to risk and reward, you wouldn't expect linearity. But in fact, it, it drops out. I mean, this drops out of this tangency portfolio argument, right? Nothing up my sleeve. This was an argument that we all did together. And we derived this curve, right, from first principles. So this is really uh, an astounding result. But it's even more astonishing that you get this result for all securities, not just for efficient portfolios. OK, other questions? All right, let's do another example. So here, I want to show you how you can use the security market line, also called the CAPM, C-A-P-M, for Capital Asset Pricing Model. I want to show you how you can use it to do performance attribution. This is uh, the data from a real live hedge fund manager who will go nameless, since I don't want to get sued by him uh, for any reason. Hedge fund managers are both very wealthy, typically, and also uh, very litigious. So you want to be careful when you talk about them in public. Uh, hedge fund XYZ had an average annualized return of 12.5% and a return standard deviation of 5.5% from January 85 to December 2002. And the estimated beta over this period was minus 0.028. Now, somebody asked about a negative beta. Well, here's an example of a negative beta asset. Positive expected rate of return, negative beta. So if it's got a positive expected rate of return and negative beta, you know something can't exactly be right. Because that doesn't sound like it makes sense in terms of the CAPM framework. And in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Well, let's do the math. The expected rate of return is equal to RF plus beta times the market risk premium. Market risk premium of 6%, risk-free rate of 5%. Plug that in with the beta of minus 0.028, and you get that this manager should have earned 4.83% per year. That's what the manager should have earned. In fact, the manager earned a rate of return of 12.5% per year. So that's an alpha. If you define the alpha as what the manager did earn minus what the manager should have earned, You've got an alpha of 771 basis points per year. That's a humongous alpha. Very, very big amount of excess performance. This is why people are excited about hedge funds. Now, 
we, we're not going to talk in great detail about it in this course because it goes beyond the scope of Finance uh, 401. Uh, but in an investments course, the next level of sophistication would be to take a look at this and say, OK, is this alpha really alpha? Or is it due to other factors, other risks that we're not measuring? Right now, the only risk we're measuring is this tangency portfolio risk, this beta risk. But maybe there are multiple betas out there. We're not going to talk about it in this course, but in 433, you will discuss it. And it will turn out that hedge funds actually do have multiple betas. So you shouldn't go out and put all your money in hedge funds right away, because this extra performance, some of it is due to true genius and uh, uh, insight and unique skill. But part of it is also due to the fact that you're bearing risks that you had no idea you're bearing. And so you've got to be careful about getting on the bandwagon and saying, yeah, give me some hedge funds. I want some of this alpha. Anand. So the question is, how do we know that this is actually good for the investor? Because the, they could have gotten uh, some return for the S&P. The way we know that is because we're measuring the expected rate of return relative to the S&P. So in other words, the way I got this number, this is the excess return on the S&P. That's what the market risk premium is. So in fact, given the beta of this manager, it should have only given you 4.83% return relative to what the S&P would have given you, which is a 6% excess rate of return. And in fact, what we see is that you know, this manager produced a 12% rate of return, or 7% above and beyond what it was supposed to have done. Okay? So this takes that into account. What it doesn't take into account is how much liquidity risk the hedge fund manager is taking, how much currency risk, how much commodity risk, and a bunch of other risks that are not represented by the tangency portfolio. Megan? And then, um, you heard about you know, looking out for beta dressed up as alpha. It's really because there are multiples for these betas that aren't getting dropped. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. Recently, a lot of institutional investors have become skeptical of hedge funds because they say hedge funds alpha uh, is really dressed up beta. In other words, hedge fund managers are taking risks that are not captured by this very simple framework. And so when you run these kind of regressions and do this analysis, you're getting tremendous alpha. But in fact, it's not all alpha. There's other kinds of betas in there. And so there's a whole literature that has developed about multiple what are called exotic betas or alternative betas. Again, not part of the scope of introductory finance, but it is something that's covered in uh, investments. OK. Just uh, uh, another illustration of what this hedge fund has done. Take a look at the, the growth of a dollar invested in the hedge fund over the last uh, 20 years. And you'll see that the blue line is the hedge fund. The red line is the S&P 500. So to your point, Anand, the S&P 500 gave you a wild ride. And so for a while, you were doing better than the hedge fund. But in fact, now, this hedge fund has done quite a bit better. Now, this ends in 2002. I'll give you a little bit of an update. Uh, I don't have it here in, in the graph, but you can use your imagination. 
It turns out that up to 2007, the blue line is way ahead of the red line. Okay? That's actually changed in 2008. <laughs> this, this hedge fund has done very badly this year. Uh, of course, the S&P has done even worse. So the gap is not as wide as it used to be. There's still a gap, but the gap is actually narrowed a bit. Yeah. No, in fact, everything is changing. So if you want to take seriously change, you've basically got to figure out how the risk-free rate is changing, the expected rate of return is changing, and the betas actually are also changing. But what I'm trying to do with this simple illustration is use a long period and say, over that entire period, let's average across all of these changes. Justin. It is, but you don't adjust for the beta. That's the key, right? The S&P has a beta of 1. This guy, this hedge fund manager, has a beta of 0 or slightly negative. That's the difference, you see? That's why looking at volatility can be misleading. If you look at volatility, you'd say, well, you know, obviously the S&P has done better, but keep in mind that look how smooth the blue line is. And the, the lesson of the CAPM is that investors pay for smoothness, but only a certain kind of smoothness. In other words, smoothness means low volatility, right? The smoothest line, of course, is T-bills. That, that, that's a straight line, right? That'll go sort of like this. And investors are not going to pay a lot for that because that doesn't really help them generate expected rate of return. If you've got expected rate of return and smoothness together, you get a really big, big alpha. And that's exactly what we see here, an alpha of 771 basis points. OK. Now, here I talk about these multiple sources of systematic risk. I don't want to focus on that for this course, because as I said, it's going to be much more complicated and requires more machinery. But the basic intuition is the same. Instead of just one source of, of systematic risk, you may have multiple sources. And so therefore, you're going to have multiple risk premia as opposed to just one. But for now, let's not focus on that. And we're going to focus our attention just on this simple equation and make sure we understand it and know how to apply it. Okay. Now, I want to, go with, I want to give you one more intuition for why it is that beta is the appropriate measure of risk and not sigma for arbitrary, inefficient portfolios. And the idea is actually pretty simple. When you think of an investment like Microsoft or like Gillette, you can think of the risk of that portfolio as being uh, the risk of that investment in those individual securities as having two components. So when you think of the, the volatility of Gillette, you can think of the volatility of Gillette coming from two sources. One source is the aggregate risk that affects all companies. And the second source of risk is the risk unique to Gillette. You know, the fact that they've got a particular manufacturing plant in a particular location of the country, the fact that they've got a specific set of managers that are either good or bad, the fact that they are subject to a very specific set of requirements uh, for producing their blades, who knows? 
but very specific to that company. When you think about that kind of risk, let me ask you a question from a purely business perspective. You're the investor. I'm a representative of Gillette. I'm trying to sell you my company's stock. I want you to invest in my company. And therefore, I have to pay you to take the risk of Gillette. If I tell you that Gillette has these two pieces of risk, so I'm the representative from Gillette, and I tell you that our company is subject to economy-wide fluctuations that will help or hurt our business, and unique fluctuations that are spe specific and special to Gillette. Which of these two risks are you going to be more concerned about from your investment portfolio perspective? Rami? Okay, but I want to. I want you, you. You hurried through the first point, and I want you to expand on that a little bit. You said that if you're worried about your portfolio, then obviously the economy-wide risk. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If you're if you're worried about you know the economy-wide risk, and you know for example over the next two three years you don't think the economy is going to recover. Yeah. Then you're going to just avoid that type of investment as a whole. Right. Okay. You might just go for the risk. Okay. Fine. So, but but on the other hand, you also said something else, which is that if you're comparing between two stocks then what you're focusing on is the risks that are unique to Gillette. Okay. You also might look at how, how much like, an economic downturn would affect a company like Gillette. Right, right. So like, you know, if the economic downturn, as I said before, affects Microsoft great, uh -huh. greater than it would Gillette, then you'd obviously, and you expect something's going to happen, you'd go for Gillette. If, on the other hand, you didn't expect that, you might go for... Okay, but, but let's now talk about the negotiations between you and me. I'm a representative of Gillette. I'm trying to get you to invest with us. And I've got two sources of risk that you might be concerned about. Market risk or Gillette-specific risk. From your portfolio perspective, since you just care about maximizing the value of your portfolio, right? You're not worried about Gillette in particular. You're not management. You're an investor. I'm management. I'm worried about Gillette. I, I couldn't care less about your portfolio, I'm sorry to say. What I care about is my company. But what you care about is your portfolio. From your portfolio perspective, what are you going to care more about? Gillette-specific risk or the, 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 the macroeconomic risk that I represent to your portfolio? Well, when, when I'm, I'm asking a question, though, about your portfolio, what you care about is your portfolio. I understand that when you're talking to me, you're going to be asking me about my company-specific risk to try to get a handle on it. But is that what you ultimately are going to be concerned about? I'm going to be concerned about, obviously, the, the macro uh, portion of it and how you fit into that. Like, you know, so I look at your data and see. I, you don't know the CAPM, though. Okay? So you know, now, now you're cheating because you now, know, you now know the CAPM. But suppose you didn't. What I'm trying to get at is the intuition, a businessman's intuition, for what you would care about more in terms of what I do to your portfolio. Right? Yeah. Simo. Didn't you say a few lectures ago that the idiosyncratic risk is uh, the survival? Yes. So I would care more about systematic risk because Why? I'm the only one I can diversify in my portfolio. That's exactly right. The idea is that <coughs> if it's Gillette-specific risk, then by definition, if you're holding a well-diversified portfolio, then you're not going to care about that because that's going to average out to nothing. 
Now, of course, we have to think about the case where you're not holding a diversified portfolio, but let me get back to that in a minute. I'm assuming that all of you are good business folks, which means that you're going to be holding a diversified portfolio. You're not going to concentrate all your bets on one particular uh, kind of investment, right? So if you are already holding a well-diversified portfolio, then when you interview me as a potential investment opportunity, do you really care about the idiosyncratic risk? Because that risk is going to be diversified away. What you care about from a portfolio perspective is how much am I going to be contributing to your overall risk? And now, now that you know the CAPM, you understand the logic of it, right? It says you care about my beta because my beta is a measure of the amount of risk I'm going to be adding to your portfolio that you cannot get rid of. How do you know you cannot get rid of it? Well, by definition, it's the market portfolio. Everybody's holding it. Nobody wants to get rid of it completely. You're on the capital markets line. right? That's the best you can do. So this notion of firm-specific risk versus economy-wide risk that distinction is a really important one. And I'll show you the mathematics of it in a minute, but I want to give you the intuition. As a result, think about this conversation happening not just for Gillette, for but for every company in the economy. If it's the case that portfolio managers that are buying stocks only care about the systematic risk, about the market risk, about the risk that they cannot get rid of, and, they, and you have to reward them for that, then what that means is that you don't have to reward them for idiosyncratic risk. Why? Because that's not risk that you are forced to bear. There's nothing that says you have to bear idiosyncratic risk. How do you get rid of idiosyncratic risk if you don't want to bear it? Diversify. Exactly. Just buy 10 stocks instead of one, and then you're diversified. 20 stocks is better than 10. And mathematically, after 50 stocks, you're basically diversified. You're, you're done. So nobody should be holding two or three stocks. Or if they do, they are bearing risk that they need not bear. And they may want to do it for other reasons. For example, as a manager of Gillette, I believe in the company. I want to demonstrate to my shareholders that I'm tied to the company. So I'm going to hold a lot of my wealth in Gillette stock. That's not well diversified. I'm holding a lot of Gillette-specific risk. That's not a smart thing to do from an investment's point of view, but that is a smart thing to do from a management point of view because I'm tying my fate to the fate of the company. Okay? It, it, it's, not, it's definitely not a smart thing from an investment's perspective. If you're in the financial services sector, you should not be buying financial services stocks. If you're in the pharmaceutical sector, you should not be buying biotech stocks. And yet, we do that for reasons other than portfolio management. But given that I'm t teaching you about portfolio management, I'm not going to focus on those other reasons. If this were an organizational studies course, uh, you'd be getting a different perspective. And you should get a different perspective. But for the purposes of building financial wealth, what you want to do is to focus on how much the systematic component is contributing to your risk. Because the idiosyncratic component, you don't have to bear. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I recommend not doing it from the financial perspective, but I may recommend doing it from the management or managerial incentives perspective. The reason that companies do that 
is very simple. They're trying to suck you in. They're trying to get you to be more intimately tied to the company so you'll act like a, an owner of the company as opposed to an employee. And if you act like an owner, you will engage in behavior that is much more productive for building the company's wealth rather than as an employee. But from your personal perspective, you're bearing risk that you, you don't need to. So you know the analogy that I give, I've given before, it may work for some of you, it may not. Let me explain. Uh, anybody know um, how much window washers in midtown Manhattan get paid on an annual basis? You know what I'm talking about? These, these are the folks that climb up on these you know, two-foot catwalks that are 40 stories high, and they wash the windows of these skyscrapers. That's a pretty risky job. Anybody know what their annual salary is when you annualize it? I, I actually decided to find out one, one day. I was, was kind of curious about that. Because you know, there's a trade-off to risk and return. And that's really risky. You know, there was one day where I was staying at a hotel. It was, I think it was the Millennium. And I was on the you know, 30th floor. And it was a windy winter day. And sure enough, there was somebody there you know, pulling up the thing, you know, cleaning the window. And looked happy as can be, you know, no problem. And I was thinking, boy, this, this guy's taking a lot of risk. You know, and I hope he's getting paid for it. Um, and you know, it's the, these these salaries are determined by supply and demand. So, what, what do you think it would be? Anybody have a guess? Yeah. About seventy thousand. dollars. Okay. Anybody else? Justin. One hundred and twenty-five. It's higher than some MBA starting salaries. Okay, Leah. Thirty thousand. Uh, insurance? <laughs> interns. Interns. I don't know about that. Well, so when I looked last time, which is about four years ago, it turns out that the typical window washer uh, for these skyscrapers get paid about $60,000 a year annual salary. $60,000. Now, you know, I don't know, how, I don't know whether you think that's a lot or a little, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, that compensation reflects the kind of risk that we're talking about. Okay? And you, know, you have no educational requirements, no, no degrees, no certifications. You just show up and you know, up you go. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question. Suppose that uh, a window washer comes to the job who happens to really enjoy dancing while he washes windows. In particular, he dances that, you know, the Irish jig or whatever that, uh, you know, the, uh, you know what I'm talking about? That, you know, that dancing, the very, you know, and he just likes to do that while he's washing windows on the 40th floor. You agree that that's more risky, right? Do you think that that particular individual gets paid more than 60000 a year? Why? He's taking more risk. Why not? Why is he going to pay more? Exactly. He doesn't have to take that risk. That's not part of the job. He can choose to take that risk, but he's not going to get compensated for it because it's not necessary. And there are 100,000 people behind him waiting in line to get that job that won't necessarily need to take that risk. Yeah? I thought of it differently. Um, so like if you had a long short portfolio, would it be the other way around? Because you wouldn't care about the market risk. You can hedge that out. 
you're thinking only about the specific risk. So, so like in that case, I would short the guy who likes to jig, <laughs> and I would invest in the guy who didn't. Well, that depends on whether or not you know, doing the Irish jig actually makes you wash windows better or worse. In other words, where there's an alpha to that risk. All right? It may be the case that dancing the Irish jig actually helps you scrape off dirt that much more effectively, in which case you may not want to short him, because then he will earn a premium in certain markets. Right, those with lots of uh, you know pigeon poop on the windows. <laughs> so we can get into this analogy more deeply than we should. But the point is that when you think about the cap M, all it's saying is that you get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. In other words, if there is a certain amount of risk in a in a particular investment, that that is risk that nobody can get rid of easily. In other words, you have to bear it. Then you have to pay for it because otherwise people aren't going to do it. However, if there's risk in a particular company that you don't have to pay for, if, if that you don't have to take, then you don't have to pay for it. That's all that the CAPM is saying. Beta is a measure of that hard little pellet of risk that you can't get rid of. And the variance is the measure of the entire risk in a particular portfolio. The only case where variance and beta are the same is for what kind of portfolio? An efficient portfolio. What is an efficient portfolio? It's one that is already maximally diversified. By adding more securities, you are not going to do any better than that straight line, right? All of these portfolios have been completely diversified. How do I know that? Because you're at the tangency portfolio. There is no way to go in the Northwest region off of that line. So for all of these securities, the sigma and the beta are literally numerically identical because there is no more extra risk in the portfolio. It's been diversified away. But for Gillette, for Microsoft, for IBM, General Motors, and Motorola, each of these contain both beta risk and non-beta risk. The non-beta risk is that Irish jig that you don't have to do while you're washing windows. And you're not going to get paid for it, I'm sorry to say. So the relationship that you want to focus on is the capital asset pricing models security market line. Measure the stuff that you're going to get paid for, and this is what you're going to get paid for it. OK? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, when you go back into sort of the real world and include transaction costs, how do they end up here? Well, so there have been versions of the CAPM with transactions cost, and it turns out that it doesn't change things too much. If you impose transactions cost on all securities uh, you know, and say that there's a percentage uh, cost for going in and out, you can derive a net of fee transactions cost. It won't affect the pricing necessarily. What it will affect is the dynamics, the trading. What it'll mean is that you will rebalance your portfolios less frequently than you otherwise might. But there is still going to be a relationship between the net of fee uh, transactions costs of these securities. So you can actually look at the transactions cost as a, a way to deduct the expected rate of return from each of these securities. So transactions cost is not a big issue, but there are other issues that I'll come to that will be a problem for this. Looking at this point, you're saying that the best efficiency in my portfolio is having basically the index. If I want to allocate my money globally, Yes. Should I buy indexes according to the market cap of the market? Yeah. This is the most uh, efficient global yeah. uh, portfolio. 
Right, so that's a great question. And we actually have a separate course on international finance that deals just with those kind of issues because they're so tricky. But I'll give you the short answer. According to the theory, this tangency portfolio is not just for the US stock market. It should be for the world stock market, exactly, everything. So this tangency portfolio should not be the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. It should be the MSCI or IFA index that has all of the assets in the world weighted relative to their market cap in the particular currency of the investor that, you're hap that you happen to be. So if uh, you're a US investor, it'll be in dollars. If you're a uh, Brazilian investor, it'll be in real. It'll be in whatever currency you trade in. But that presupposes that there's capital market integration throughout the world. So in other words, if I call this the world portfolio, implicitly I'm assuming that you can, you're free to trade stocks in any part of the world freely. There's no barriers to trading. And we know that that's not the case. There are barriers, in fact. So what that means is that the CAPM applied to international stocks is an approximation that may actually be worse than applying it country by country and then looking to see whether there are any kind of dis dis distances or discrepancies across those different countries. But people have come up with international versions of the CAPM and they don't work very well. At least they didn't as of 10 years ago. Within the last 10 years, a lot has changed. So it could be that capital market integration has made the world CAPM look a lot better uh, in terms of the data. Okay, other, other questions? All right, so now um, I'm going to talk about implementing it. And we're going to deal with all of the, the messy issues that I tried to put off uh, a lecture ago. How do you take this thing out for a spin? Well, one thing you could do is to try to test the CAPM to see if it works. And one way to test it is to ask the question, if we assume that all securities are priced according to this equation, then another way to write the equation that doesn't rely on expected returns but rely, relies on realized returns is to write it as a regression equation, as you did in DMD. Right? The regression equation is the return, the actual realized return on security I is given by the risk-free rate plus beta times the realized return on the market minus the risk-free rate plus epsilon. Epsilon is the error term, the disturbance, the residual that is giving you the fluctuations around the expected value. So when we remove the expected values from this equation, we have to stick in this epsilon term that sort of bounces around, right? By the way, when you look at this equation, you now have an explicit representation for a systematic risk and idiosyncratic risk. Right? For a given return, it's comprised of three pieces. The risk-free rate, beta times the market return that bounces around, and this epsilon is the Irish jig. That is the idiosyncratic bouncing around that you don't get any reward for. How do you know you don't get any reward for it? Because on average, the expected value of this is equal to 0. How do I know that? By definition, that's how I got from this equation down here. If you take the expected value of this equation, 
the only way that the expected value of this gives you this equation on the top is if that epsilon has a zero mean. So you don't get paid for bearing epsilon risk. It's there. It's def and it, for some stocks, it's huge. But you don't get paid for it because you don't have to bear it. And the reason you don't have to bear it is if you take 50 of these stocks and stick them in a portfolio, the epsilons average out to zero. How do I know that? Well, this relies on a piece of mathematics that's known as the law of large numbers. You may have heard that term used in casual conversation, but it's actually a real theorem. What it says is that when you have large, large numbers of fluctuations that are not correlated with each other, and by definition, idiosyncratic risks for Gillette and Microsoft and other companies are not correlated because they're idiosyncratic. They're unique to those firms. That when you get a large number of these uncorrelated fluctuations that in the limit, they actually go to zero. You can disregard them. Okay? So the law of large numbers is what tells you that this idiosyncratic risk is not going to be something you will get paid for. Okay, so this is the CAPM relationship using actual data. And if we stick in an alpha term to represent deviations from the CAPM, and I subtract the risk-free rate from both sides just to have everything in excess returns, then the CAPM reduces to the hypothesis that the alpha across all stocks, all managers, all projects, the alpha is equal to zero. That's what the CAPM says. And if you want to formulate it strictly in terms of uh, total rates of return, it says that the alpha has to be equal to the risk-free rate times 1 minus beta. So this is a different alpha than this alpha. This alpha represents the excess rate of return, right? OK, so let's, uh, let's do it. Let's, let's see whether or not it's true. Let's take a bunch of stocks, subtract the risk-free rate from the stock returns, run a regression of that stock's return on a constant and the market excess return. And let's see whether the intercept is equal to 0. Well, if you do this for two stocks, Biogen and Motorola, I've done this from uh, 1988 to, uh, the, I think, 2006. Um, when you run that regression, here's what you get. For Biogen, the beta is 1.43. The intercept. 1.61%, and the standard error is 1.1%. And then RF times 1 minus beta is minus 2.1%. This should be equal to the alpha uh, in that previous uh, equation that I gave you. Okay. So in other words, the alpha that we've estimated for Biogen using this CAPM regression is 3.7%, or on a monthly basis, 45% alpha. Biogen is an incredibly good buy according to the CAPM, if you believe the CAPM. All right? Now that's Biogen. What about Motorola? During the same period, when you estimate Motorola, it's got a beta of 1.42, and we're estimating an alpha not quite as big, but 23.5% on an annualized basis. That's still pretty big. So if you run this regression and analyze it, this is what you would conclude, that um, these two stocks are wonderful buys. 
what we're going to talk about next time is whether this interpretation really makes sense or whether we've got some missing factors or whether we're measuring things improperly. We're going to need to do a bit more work. But we're very close to being able to figure out exactly how all of these pricing models work in tandem with the kinds of uh, risk budgeting calculations that we're going to need to do for the rest of the course. So I'll see you on Monday. <laughs>